And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully you guys had a great weekend. Uh, a lot of great football this weekend. Man, the games were... Uh, except for that, uh, except for the uh, uh, Chargers-Patriots game. That was, that was, that was ugly. But uh, yeah, hopefully you guys uh, had a good weekend, got some downtime, relaxed a little bit, uh, didn't get snowed in wherever you are. Uh, but yeah, uh, great show today. Great show. I had Nate Madden, who is the congressional correspondent for Blaze media um we talked about all things uh capitol hill related um spoiler alert no, nothing good <laughs> nothing good uh typically comes out of congress so that that should be expected but it was a great chat with nate uh good guy uh he had a lot of great stuff to say i think you guys will enjoy it uh, before i get to nate i need to say hi to our friends over at premier vapor if you smoke and you want to quit or if you vape already, you need to check out Premier Vapor. They have the largest selection of premium e-liquid anywhere in the country. It really is great stuff. Um, they have any kind of tank, uh, battery, mod, coil, anything you need for your vape setup, they have. Um, if you are in Northwest Ohio, they have physical locations in Perrysburg and Holland, Ohio. Definitely check them out in person if you're traveling through the area. If not, go to PremierVaporAndLounge.com. That is PremierVaporAndLounge.com. They will give you free shipping on all orders over 35 bucks. You really can't beat that. And also, guys, if you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter at NoGimmicksPod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Uh, if you're on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating and a good review. I would really appreciate that that all right without further ado here's my chat with nate madden all right guys we're here with nate madden congressional correspondent for blaze media nate uh thanks so much for taking the time brother thanks for having me on how's it going it's going great it's going great uh, i think we're, we're both snowed in and uh totally different parts of the country but uh you know it's all good um, oh yeah so all this right, this is this is the way you do a Monday. This is a great way to do a Monday. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so let's get the boring stuff out of the way before we get into some stuff I actually want to talk about. Um, so, but you know, the the boring stuff. Let's just let's tackle it real quick. You know, we're three weeks into this government partial government shutdown. You you cover Congress for a living. Has there been any progress made thus far? Are the Democrats any closer to making any kind of compromise with the president? Uh, where are we at right now? We're at a dead out stalemate and there's no way to read which way that needle is going to point, uh, if it, when, and if it ever does move, uh, um, you have neither side of this that has any incentive whatsoever to blink. Um, because you've got both, th- th- this is really a proxy war, uh, between the two different Americas right now. You know, so you got the, the Democratic base, which gives Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi no reason to give on any sort of physical border security past the $1.3 billion they already agreed to. And then you've got the other America that wants border security. They want this wall built. They want enforcements. And I think both sides of this realize that neither one of the other side's supporters are ever going to have their minds changed, at least not in the foreseeable future. So the only way out of this is either a continu- continued stalemate or a double fig leaf that gives everybody enough of a, enough cover to save face without actually accomplishing anything. Right. I uh, 
See, I have this nagging feeling that we're not going to get the, the common sense solution would be a double fig leaf, right? We, we you know, some kind of path to citizenship for DACA kids, something like that for five, six billion, whatever for the wall. I have this nagging feeling that we're not going to get that. The Republicans are just going to fold and we're not going to get anything. Am I being too pessimistic or, you know, I obviously I, I, we always lose these government shutdown battles. I, mean, I don't know why, but uh, Republicans just don't have the stones like the Democrats do. You know, they <laughs> the Democrats never break ranks. They obviously have cover from the mainstream media. So, well, it helps to have all that cultural cover, right? Right. Uh, government shutdown is ultimately it's it's an attrition battle. You, you have to see how many people, how long you, you can keep the morale up on your side while the morale on the other side wears down. And it's a lot easier for Democrats to keep their morale up and keep every keep unit cohesion together because they have cover from the mainstream media and Hollywood and academia and all their bases of, of support. The Republican Party pretty much has you know what Nixon. And now, you know, what Nixon called the silent majority and what Trump calls a forgotten man, that's that's the base of support they have in this fight. And that base of support, you know, except for the way social media has changed the way we communicate, they don't have the same kind of infrastructure that the Democrat base of support does. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's so do you agree with my prediction that we're basically not going to get anything out of this and Trump's going to eventually cave? I you know what? Three weeks ago when this first started. I, I would have said that is just the right amount of pessimistic, but the way that the White House has held on and the way that they've the way that Trump has stared down him, he's been willing to walk out of meetings on this where he's actually this is this is the Donald Trump that wrote Art of the Deal in the 19 in the 1980s. This is the guy that this is the Trump that built his name in Queens that, that's showing up to these meetings. So I, I really cannot tell you which way this the stalemate goes at this point. Right. And. Thus far, I have been somewhat impressed with uh, with congressional Republicans as well. Not very many of them have broken ranks. Um, there's a few, like Senator Gardner from Colorado, who's facing a uphill battle for reelection uh, in 2020. A few of those guys that you know that are in in blue states, but for the most part, you know, a lot of the vast majority of congressional Republicans have you know told the the White House to dig in. Exactly. And I mean, those defections that they, they haven't gotten more than uh, if you count the look at the vote count, anticipate the moderate Republicans that you're always going to lose on stuff like this in the Senate. You know, your Collins, your Murkowski, your your Gardner, you look past that. You haven't lost. You know, the, I think the fluctuation on uh, defection votes in the House on these Democrat spending bills to reopen without any sort of concession has fluctuated between eight and 12. Right. Uh, and, that, and that's a House vote. Uh, the Senate, you've got a small handful that's trying to negotiate this, trying to get a, that's trying to get out of it. Lindsey Graham tried to do the old, uh, tried to negotiate a, a DACA trade for border security. That didn't happen. Um, but, you know, you're starting to see that that discouragement creep in on both sides, because on the other side of that, what I'm noticing is a trend of Democrats who took Republican seats in this past, particularly um, uh, the Democrat who took Steve Knight's seat out in California, uh, said that she'd be open to some physical border security. And uh, Dave Bratt's replacement in Virginia, she's been getting a lot of pressure. Uh, Abigail Spanberger's her name. She's been getting a lot of pressure from constituents that previously voted for Bratt that still want border security, even though the district is flipped to blue. So you're seeing it's not just a one-sided thing. The pressure is going both ways on, on this. But the pressure, the majority of the pressure is going to be in, in a lot of these swing districts. And I think a lot of these newer members on the Democratic side, a lot of these more vulnerable Republican members 
are going to set a lot of the narrative for the the days and weeks ahead on how the morale on each side plays out. See, and it's also great that I, I have a, uh, a congressional correspondent on the show today because I'm sure that uh, none of the listeners have ever heard of those obscure uh, <laughs> freshman congressmen. Uh, I, I certainly haven't either. But um, all right, so let's move on. I, I really haven't been talking about the government shutdown that much because it's boring. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we have to touch on it. I have to poke my head in every couple of weeks on it. But, uh, you know, let, uh, let's get to some vegetables. Yeah, exactly. Let's get to some uh, juicier content. Um House Democrats, the, the the Democratic leaders, are becoming increasingly annoyed with the socialist side of their party. You know, uh, people like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is spending a ton of time attacking her own party, talking about primarying, you know, non-socialist Democrats and stuff like that. How does Pelosi and the Democratic leadership handle the division in their own caucus? It, it is refreshing to finally see some division in their ranks, because it's usually the Republican Party that's always divided. So it is it is fun to, to watch the other side deal with the same shit we've been dealing with for years. Well, yeah, so that's the thing. Republican schisms happen out in the open. Republican fights have, have traditionally, they have, looking back to the Tea Party movement, right. the 2010 uh, House sweep that led to that division between House conservatives and uh, establishment Republicans, the creation of the Freedom Caucus, you know, all these things, they, they tend to happen out in the open, and they tend to really, the, the, the right tends to put its own on the spot in that respect more whereas historically in recent history democrats have been better at solving this stuff and dealing with it especially you have to i have to chalk this up to pelosi's leadership this is where baltimore nancy comes in uh <laughs> she's been really good at keeping those fractions because they do exist you know you've got the identity politics crowd and the old school moderate blue dogs and the, and the socialists and it, it, it you know the left isn't as monolithic as as some on the right want to view it um and Pelosi and other leaders have been good about keeping those under wraps, keeping all the negotiations done behind closed doors and not airing out that dirty laundry. But now you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you have uh, Rashida Tlaib, you have all these other new freshmen that are starting to seem like they want to be the progressive Tea Party movement. They, they want to be this, this new surge of publicly calling out the establishment on their own side, um, which I I know on the right it's going to be really refreshing to see something besides monolithic uh, monolithic togetherness from the, from the, their political opposition. But it'll only time's really going to tell if that chasm that they've created is going to get more prominent and more open. Right, right. And see, both parties don't realize this until the situation presents itself. But it's a lot harder to be the majority party in either House of Congress than it is to be in the minority. It's real easy to be in the minority. Um, oh, yeah. you, know, you just complain a lot. You attack the party in power. You don't actually have to get anything and done. And you fundraise. Right, right. It's way harder to actually govern. And, you know, the Tea Party is a great example. These Tea Party congressmen that were elected, they they really talked a great game when they were campaigning and when they were in the minority. But when they took power, they didn't get anything done. It's extremely difficult to move the ball forward in Congress as it's supposed to be. You know, it's uh, gridlock is, you know, intentional. Um, but, yeah, I— there's there's other people too that are going to be presenting big headaches for Dem leadership and you know Tul well, Tulsi Gabbard for instance. One thing I would yeah, yeah. Go ahead. One thing I would say to that point is I think that that primarily fell on Boehner's leadership and then on Ryan's leadership right. uh, in the House. And th this is the situation that if this becomes more prominent, Pelosi is going to have the choice where she can choose to have an out in the open civil war where she's constantly fighting the ideological wing of her own party, like Boehner tried to do and then Ryan tried to do to a much lesser extent afterwards or she can figure out a way to work with them and use the ideological wing of her 
party as an asset, uh, which neither Boehner nor Ryan really ever tapped into. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely correct. Um, I, I wonder how willing Pelosi is to work with the the hardcore socialists. If if you look at the, you know, and we call them socialists. If you read the actual platform of the 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 Democratic Socialists of America, they're actually communists. I mean, they're they're actually hardcore Marxists. If you read their platform, they're about basically abolishing private property. So I mean, I, calling them socialists probably isn't even going far enough. But uh, you know, obviously it would, it would be horrifying if Democratic leadership embraced a lot of those principles. But, uh, you know, and then you, you never know. On the other side, the other House of Congress, Chuck Schumer, is, you know, Jewish. And he is he going to embrace these these anti-Semitic types in, in, in his caucus? I, I don't think so. I, I don't I, I at least hope that the Democratic leadership isn't willing to incorporate too much of this young blood into their party. Well, I, I as far as the anti-Semitism stuff goes, the, the, the BDS stuff, I have no idea what that is. It's something to keep an eye on in the Senate. Well, I'm sure you, um, I'm sure you saw. Oh, I, I talked about it on the last show. I, I'm sure you saw Marco Rubio's uh, tweets um, from last week oh, saying how basically Democratic leadership did not want the the uh, I forget what bill it was, but it had something to do with with supporting Israel or something like that. They they were trying to keep this bill off the Senate floor because yeah. Schumer didn't want the American people to find out how many anti-Semites are in the Senate. Right, they, they, and it's it's a fight amongst themselves they don't want to have yet because you still have. A lot of members of the Democratic Old Guard who are themselves Jewish, Diane Feinstein, Chuck Schumer, right. who don't like all this anti-Israel BDS stuff. Israel, on a lot of things, with very few exceptions, used to be a broadly bipartisan thing. Right. Uh, the U.S. alliance with Israel, and and that coalition came from that that, that came from forward projection hawks who wanted to have more uh, forward projection influence in the Middle East. It also came from Jewish. Jewish members of both parties, and it used to be uh, more in the Democratic Party. Now we're seeing a lot of this stuff bubble up, and uh, this is another one of those situations where the Democratic Party is trying to operate a progressive big tent, and they're going to have to figure out who's going to have the prime real estate in that tent. Is it going to be the new, fresh, pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel, pro-BDS crowd, or are they going to dance with the girl that brought them this far and stay with the pro-Israel voices in their own party. Right. Yeah, it's definitely be fascinating to watch. Another another Congress congressman who's going to present major problems for the Democrats is Tulsi Gabbard from from Hawaii who announced she's running for president. Oh yeah. Um she's, you know, in her late 30s, she's pretty she's she's pretty smart. I listened to her entire interview on Joe Rogan's podcast a couple months ago. She's very intelligent. Um which one by the just side note, I have a lot of libertarian listeners. I'm you know, libertarians call me a conservative. Conservatives call me a libertarian. I just piss everybody off, I guess. Like, I, you know, it's hard to make anybody happy if you have a podcast. It's my favorite. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, I I like that she's anti-war uh, and stuff. But guys like libertarians that are like drooling over Tulsi Gabbard, she's a socialist. <laughs> I mean, her, her, her economic policies are straight out of the communist manifesto, guys. Like, she's not good. Back Back away now, please. I get it. She doesn't want to invade Syria. I respect that. She also wants to steal all of your things. So uh, anyway, but that's a, right. that's a it's, side note. <laughs> I, I noticed the same thing Friday night as I was wrapping up work and I was checking everything that you know was coming over my social feed and I saw that Gabbard announced, and then I saw you know a, a lot of a lot of more libertarian guys and more conservatives who are themselves realist in their foreign policy started to get really excited. And I'm thinking, all right, so if you want an anti-war candidate. That you know, going for Tulsi Gabbard just because she doesn't want to invade Syria is a lot like saying you want 
want to buy a 757 to get free peanuts. Right. right? There are right. other ways to get free peanuts that don't involve that kind of a commitment that you don't want. Like Rand Paul's still alive. He's, you know, he's still the senator from yeah. Kentucky, right? Like he's, you know, he just won re-election by a large margin. Like he's still there, guys. There are others. There's, you know, Mark Meadows, he exists. You know, I, yeah, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But, uh, you know, her party, the Democratic Party is very, very pro-war. And, and she's uh, very anti-war. She called out her, her Democratic... The D.C. policy establishment. The D.C. foreign policy establishment is very, very pro-war. Right. It's very, very nonstop involvement. It's very, very spend as much money as you can get away with on urban renewal projects in as many war zones and play referee for ideological Islamic uh, wars, civil wars until you until you run out and all but break the bank. And the the problem is people view this as a is, is it's a one side or another thing when it comes to the when it comes to when it comes to foreign policy specifically, there is a DC foreign policy elite, and there is a reddish shade of that, and there is a bluish shade of that. But it's all the same. It's all the same ball of wax. Right, right. I mean, I've the the clip from Eisenhower's farewell address is in the intro to my show. I've I've played it. I've talked about it a million times. It goes back to he was warning against the the, the unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, of the military-industrial complex. And I sound like a uh, just a crazy libertarian quoting that all the time, but you're you're absolutely right. It is the unelected bureaucrats in the military-industrial complex that you know it is in their interest to keep these wars going. And but and another thing about Gabbard, it's not just the anti-war stuff. It's she called out <laughs> her colleague, her Democratic colleagues, for religious bigotry the other day. She called out Maisie, Maisie oh, Carono, yeah. Dan Feinstein, Kamala Harris. She is in the party of religious bigotry. The Democrats love religious bigotry. So they're not Nancy Pelosi is not gonna like this. Christians, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. It, it, yeah, they're they're yeah. they're great on bigotry against Christians and Jews, not so much anybody else. But that that's really yeah. gonna be a punch to the mouth of congressional Democrats and Senate Democrats because they make their living being bigots. So they have somebody that, you know, this young pretty congressman running for president of the United States. She's going to be on TV a lot, you know, calling for the end of religious bigotry on the left. Uh, that That's going to present some problems for Democrats. It is. It is. And it already has. And it's already driven quite a divide, but it's also created a problem for her. Right. Uh, that so she's she's not your standard issue. Uh, far left progressive in that when it comes to social issues, she's taking a lot of flack from left because she used to work for an organization that was deemed anti-gay. She used to hold positions that are now being deemed by the progressive left as, as anti-gay. There, she's taking flack from that. She'll end up taking flack from the right for being uh, for being a Bernie Sanders supporter, for being a socialist. She is just such an odd political animal in in the landscape that we have. There is going to be a very very narrow base of support for her. As interesting as she's going to be and not, because everybody's got to disqualify and not found anywhere in that base of support are the people that fund these campaigns. I will say that, you yeah, know, well, whether it's the, the establishment, the pro war establishment that, you know, the, the Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama type donors or the grassroots, the people that funded Bernie Sanders campaign, they're all into the religious bigotry. They're, they're into the anti-Christian, anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish bigotry. So they're not going to like her. I don't know where she's going to find the money. I, I, I don't either. Uh, I think she's going to generate a lot of buzz. I think it's going to be, I, I think this is going to be very similar to what we saw with uh, 
not identical, but similar, at least in in comparative structure to Ron Paul's 2008. I was just going to say that, yeah. The 2000, Ron yeah. Paul 2008 like, run, that's that's exactly what it reminds me of. You have a very narrow, very dedicated base of support um, that is going to keep her alive through there, that is going to generate a lot of interesting conversations, but isn't really going to pan out into delegate votes for that uh, for that primary convention. Right, and just another note, uh, you know, and I've debated people on the show, I, I'm all about... Um, President Trump pulling our troops out of Syria. Um, it's an it's an illegal war anyway. I mean, Obama invaded Syria through an executive order. Congress never gave authorization to be there in the first place. But uh, since you made the point about Ron Paul's 2008 campaign, something I brought up a lot, and I think you're going to see it with Tulsi Gabbard um, this year. In 2008, active duty military donated more to Ron Paul's campaign than all other candidates running for president on both sides combined. Mm-hmm. So, and I think you're probably going to see that uh, for for Gabbard as well. I mean, the, the active duty military does skew Republicans. So there's not going to be as many people donating, but um, active right. duty military they're a lot more uh, non-interventionist than than you might think. Well, yeah, because interventionism ends up with people getting yeah. shot at. Like, yes, it ends up with deployment pay, but it also ends up with people getting right. shot at. Right, right. So there has been a couple pieces of gun legislation uh, introduced lately. Um, first, can you talk us through the uh, conceal and carry reciprocity bill? That should be a no-brainer. It should be a slam dunk, but you never know on these things. Well, it's a perennial, it's a perennial pro-gun bill. It's been introduced by John Cornyn in the last three sessions of Congress. Uh, this time he teamed up with, with Ted Cruz. Basically, the, the one that Cornyn puts forward is it, and we can talk about the difference between that and a couple different house versions if you have concealed carry privileges whether those are by permit or by constitutional carry fiat you have in state a and state b allows for concealed carry then it would mandate that federal law has to recognize and give full faith and credit to your concealed carry privileges from your home state as long as the state you're in allows concealed carry and as long as you're following the regulations set forth in that state so if you're going into a place that that puts uh, you know, a, a ten-round magazine total on there, but you're coming from a state that doesn't have one. You can't just take a fifteen-round magazine from state A to state right, B. Right. Things like that. You know, it, it's a, a very basic full faith and credit thing that comes up, and it's it's easy program messaging, but it never gets the kind of traction necessary to actually get to the president's desk. Right. I, I thought that because they've been talking about reintroducing this bill, because like you said, they do. Um, John Gordon specifically has introduced it, what, three or four times at least. Um, it, it would have been smart. Yeah, and before that, right. I don't know why they didn't get this passed uh, before the election in November, because it would have passed both houses of Congress and it would have been a win. Say, hey, look, keep us keep congressional uh, Republicans in charge because we're getting stuff done. Like I don't everything Republicans have done the last couple months. The timing has been dubious, you know, to say the least. But well, why didn't they just get this done when they could actually get it passed? Well, there was, it's actually more devious than inaction in this case. It was it was actually used as a fig leaf uh, to get the fix-nix bill out of the House. So what happened was there was actually a vote vote on this in the House last session in uh, in twenty in uh, oh man, I think uh, late twenty seventeen. So they paired the concealed carry reciprocity, the sister bill, uh, the House's sister bill, to an act to upgrade and update the NICS database system. Right, because they realized that uh, doing all this stuff to the NICS database system and, and closing a lot of this stuff was never going to get enough momentum by itself. Uh, because one, it looks too much like gun control, and two, it's just it, it take, it's one of those where it's exciting to boring factor doesn't generate enough 
uh, grassroots support. So they, they put them together in the House. They got it out of the House. Then they separated them in the Senate, and then they passed the, the Nix bill. Gotcha. That, so it was, that's, yeah, that's it, very frustrating. <laughs> that is... Yeah. Well, yeah. So this is this swamp in action, man. This is how it that works. Is, that is some classic I think the only person who really, yeah, this is the only person who really raised Kane about it was uh, was was Thomas Massey when he got into that fight with the NRA right, right, over it. Right. Right. Yeah. But it looked like it was going to get stripped off when it got to the right. Senate. Yeah. Right now, I because I, I travel the country all the time. I'm in a rock and roll band, um, so I'm I'm going state to state constantly. I'm in a new state every day, half the time. And uh, yeah, the the Ohio uh, concealment carry permit is only recognized by 22 other states you know i've been thinking about getting a permit next time i'm in utah uh, if i have a day off because I, I believe the utah cnc is recognized by like 43 states or something so uh uh so i know utah virginia gets you up to like 35 36 okay. right. um yeah uh, uh so yeah I've, I've got a virginia residential and i you know the only reason i would have gotten one uh the only reason i would have gotten utah was if it were uh, still recognized by pa because i, I do go north and up to Philly a lot, but PA stopped recognizing it, so I'm I'm going to save my yeah, money. Yeah. yeah, that's that's fair enough. Um, so <laughs> there was an anti-gun uh, piece of legislation introduced uh, by the Democrats as well. This was last month, or uh... Uh, two actually. Okay. So you have the expanded background checks uh, bill that was introduced by Nancy Pelosi, Mike Thompson, and a handful of uh, more moderate liberal Republicans in the House, and then you have the assault, the quote-unquote assault weapon. Weapons ban, which is another perennial bill that was introduced by Diane Feinstein, because every session of Congress, she introduces some form of a quote unquote assault weapons ban in the same kind of style as the 94 law that she spearheaded. And every year there are a few different updates. There's new hardware they want to put on. There's stuff that they take off occasionally. Uh, there's a different there's a different list of scary looking guns that they don't want to yeah, get through. Say, uh, that they don't every session get. of Congress, we do have yeah. to watch a video of Diane Feinstein with a giant posters of guns and she's trying to point out things that she yes. is there anything worse than hearing people that have never shot a gun try to explain guns i mean wow it is really really embarrassing uh, stuff hearing people that have that don't understand guns try to take my guns away <laughs> that's that's slightly more frustrating but i mean it's it's stuff like that and it happens all the time that's why uh, last year my team and i we got together we put together this mini series called firepower 101 and it's it's all it is is it's just the stuff that you would learn in a basic intro level shooter safety course you know like this is how the action works this is how a semi-automatic works this is what basic safety is this is how ballistics work you know all the stuff that anti-gun politicians and anti-gun reporters tend to overlook and get wrong every time there's a gun discussion we wanted to address that to make their even to make their less of an excuse for them right, to use right and obviously neither neither of those pieces of legislation will even get a, a vote on the senate floor so uh, you know Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. I mean, the your expanded background checks thing that that one, it, it also came up in 2013. There were a thousand reasons then to not do it. There are a thousand. There are just as many reasons now uh, for the, the Second Amendment. Advocates will put out against it. It can pass the House with Democrats. It'll never get a vote on the Senate for right. it. And any um, chance, any chance at all. I probably already know your answer, but any chance the conceal and carry reciprocity bill goes anywhere? Uh, in the Senate? I mean, if they want a good if they want a good show vote, uh, they'll do it. But then again, that's that's the difficulty of having a split Congress is, yeah, that could get out of the They could safely vote for that in the Senate with no repercussions right. uh, and, and to get, you know, to, to jack up their scores and all, all the all like the NRA and the GOA uh, scorecard, right. all that. They could do that just to just to just to fluff the stats, but it's not going to get even be considered in the House. So 
So yeah, it's like it's like you know that year that Blake Bortles threw for like thirty five touchdowns, but the Jags only won three games or something like that. You're like, all right, guys, you're you're scoring these points right. at the end of the game when you're down forty. <laughs> you know. Oh, Congress. All right, so <laughs> I'm almost out of time. Uh, but you, you're on Capitol Hill every day covering Congress. Anything else that the people need to know? Anything else devious going on behind the scenes that you want to bring up and illuminate for all the good people back home? Oh, you kind of put me on the spot here. There's always something devious. There's always something shady, and there's always something um, completely nonsensical that the American people will either roll their eyes or shake their <laughs> if you want to keep up with that, follow me uh, on Twitter at Nate on the Hill. I'm tracking it day in and day out. Uh, but, you know, Congress, the one thing I will say, Congress tends to run on autopilot, except for when they're doing something that you're really not going to like. <laughs> yeah. Man, that's uh, truer words have, have not been spoken. Uh, that is that is absolutely true. And also, I, I wanted to mention uh it, it's it's very important. It's a great thing that companies like the Blaze and even companies like the Daily Wire now have you know congressional reporters have people have White House reporters, you know people like me with no team, you know it it sucks constantly having to rely on the boots in the ground from the mainstream media, right? Because it's everything's being funneled through that lens. So it's great that people like you and companies <laughs> like the Blaze actually have people on the ground. I think that's uh it's it's long overdue and I think it's uh, going to do a lot of good. Well, thank you very much, Absolutely. brother. Everybody follow Nate on Twitter at Nate on the Hill, um, and I'll definitely have him back. This is a great chat. Um, that's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I will be back on Wednesday. No gimmicks. Uh-huh.